Hi, and welcome back to Film School Fess-Ups. I hope you enjoyed your long holiday break. Uh, I certainly found it energizing and and, uh, and reinvigorating. I read a lot, uh, watched a lot of movies as usual, and uh, enjoyed not being in the classroom for a couple weeks. So before we get started today with what may be my favorite episode of this podcast that I've recorded so far, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, I thought I'd start off with a quick rundown of my favorite films of 2018. So last, I think we had kind of left things. I had gone over some of my favorite home video releases of the year, uh, and I had put a pin in my top 10 list for 2018 because of the uh, the kind of leg I was having in semi-rural Texarkana getting to some of the films. So number one on my list was uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. I had a fantastic experience seeing this in theaters. Not that I'm a purist about it, um, but it did have Dolby Atmos, and I was I was blown away uh, by the kind of rebirth of neorealist aesthetics that a Caron has, has kind of brought us uh, using sound, deep focus, long take, widescreen photography, and black and white to kind of tell us this this heartbreaking story of a uh, of a uh, rural um, Mexican uh, maid working in an upper kind of middle class household in in the big city, uh, and I I loved it. I it was just kind of blown away by it. So Roma is number one. Number two, The Rider, which I think I've already spoken at length about. Both both of my my top films were kind of these these Italian neorealist 2.0 films. So uh, The Rider is uh, very much a slice of life uh, film about a um, cowboy who is thrown from his horse and has to decide, make an existential decision of whether or not he's going to keep riding or not. And it's very kind of uh, based on the the main life of the the life of the main character, um, there's a great deal of documentary element there, and it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, I'm, I'm of two minds of her getting a Marvel movie. On one hand, I'm like, you got to get that money, girl. On the other hand, I'm also like, I I I hate to see you waste three years of your career on a Marvel movie when you make such great character portraits. But neither neither. Ha- you know, neither here nor there. I'm going to be open-minded about it, but she is she's a filmmaker to be uh, reckoned with, I would gather. And uh, the writer is just such a beautiful piece of work. Uh, Black Klansman, uh, first reformed. I believe I spoke about both of those already. Um, Mission Impossible Fallout, which for an action film, it's it's really hard to uh, to beat. Uh, so many great sequences in that film, from the the Halo jump, of course, to the um, I actually really like the economy of this, the, this, the auction scene where um, they're going to auction off or he has to go um, pose as, as this other person. So there's like three, I, I just, I'm, every 10 minutes there's a wonderful sequence in Mission Impossible Fallout. The only thing that struck me as a negative the second time around is I, I kind of didn't care for the score and the cinematography um, as much. Uh, the score reminded me too much of of Hans Zimmer's work on Dark Knight and I thought was not terribly interesting and the cinematography watching it on Blu-ray again uh, a second time I, I was kind of I, I guess I hadn't remembered how soft and kind of ethereal the film looks and, and I don't know I'm fine with that but uh, I don't I, I didn't love maybe I didn't love the treatment of it in HD in any case top five Roma the writer Black Klansman first reformed and Mission Impossible Fallout Six was You Were Never Really Here, uh, Lynn Ramsey's film. Uh, I've really 
enjoyed watching her career progress going back to Morvern Collar, which I saw as an undergraduate in a film and lit class. I thought it was fantastic, and I, I hope that that film one day gets a proper um, home video treatment. Uh, you Were Never Really Here kind of struck me as like, she reminds me in a lot of ways as kind of a, a someone who's kind of operating in Soderbergh's mode where it's this kind of narrative minimalism and just style to the max. Uh, Annihilation, uh, the Alex Garland film, I really enjoyed, although uh, I'm of two minds of whether or not it could have been more ambiguous or explained more. It explains more than the books, which is certainly rewarding to a certain extent, um, but it's also uh, not nearly as ambiguous as something like 2001, which people kept equating it with. Uh, Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind is uh, my eighth choice. Uh, Speaking of ambiguity and fragmentation I, I guess all of the films pretty much in my my 10 as usual uh given my interest in in cinematic form are, are formalist uh to a tremendous extent uh other side of the wind and its kind of cubist approach to the art cinema uh is far ahead of its time uh and uh i really loved it um the favorite is number nine would make a great double bill with barry linden tremendously funny uh, it's the first of uh, Yorgos, I'm going to butcher his last name, I apologize, Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, it's the first of his films that I actually really enjoyed all the way through. Uh, I thought The Lobster and Sacred of a Killing, uh, Sacred of a, Killing of a Sacred Deer, let me reverse that, um, were good, but I also felt like the third acts kind of petered out a little bit, and I, I didn't terribly love Dogtooth, so the favorite... The performances, the tone, um, in, in terms of being a film about trying to overcome class barriers and gender, I thought was fantastic. And number 10 is Shirkers, um, a, a kind of documentary essay film about trying to make a film uh, as, a, as a young woman in Singapore. Sorry, I was trying to remember where the documentaries made i watched most of these like two months ago so some of them are a little hazy and i can't speak to them as uh specifically but those were the 10 roma the writer black Klansman, first reformed mission impossible fallout you were never really here annihilation other side of the wind the favorite and shirkers definitely check them out most of them are available on streaming now that brings me to today's episode uh i am just pleased as punch to be talking to one of my old grad school colleagues, Maya Smuckler. Maya and I uh, went to UCLA for our master's degree uh, in 2006 to 2008, and then we started the PhD program together. Uh, for those of you who are academics, you know that you know grad school cohorts are very small and very intimate in most cases, and in terms of UCLA, uh, I don't know if this is a, a culture thing, but our cohorts, we had very positive relationships, so we were all kind of in it together. None of us wanted, there was never a sense of competition or anything like that. Um, so it, it, it's it's just been such a tremendous pleasure to see an idea that I saw Maya talking about with such great passion almost oh god I don't want to think about it almost 10 years ago in in grad classes uh to finally read this amazing book that she's written entitled um I know the first title I don't know the subtitle off the top of my head Liberating Hollywood Women Directors and Feminist Reform of 1970s American Cinema it just came out from Rutgers um 
and uh, you can find it on Amazon. It's available in a very affordable uh, paperback. And I'm rushing this episode out, actually, because, as Maya tells me at the end, um, they're actually showing the Elaine May, some of the Elaine May fil- films we talk about this weekend at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. So by way of introduction, here's my uh, here's the beef brief bio of uh, Maya Smuckler. Maya Smuckler got her PhD in cinema and media studies from UCLA and now heads the research and study center at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. Fun aside, used to work there as a work-study student my first year of master's degree with um, with those good folks over there. So it's nice to kind of see somebody I know taking ownership of the, the Film and Television Archive after Mark Quigley. Uh, She began her career in film as an assistant to director Allison Anders on the film Grace of My Heart in 1996 and went on to work for the American Film Institute's directing workshop for women and women make movies. And starting in 2015, she has conducted oral histories for the visual history program at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Since 2002, Maya has been a lecturer at the School of Media Studies at the New School, In addition, she has taught film and television studies at Otis College of Art and Design, the New York Film Academy, and UCLA. Her audio commentary is available on Olive Films' Blu-ray of Elaine May's film A New Leaf, and she's here to talk to me uh, quite a bit about her book today and the Elaine May film Mikey and Nikki. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Maya. Uh, I'm going to start off with the the usual question that I ask all the guests, and that question is, what got you into movies? What was the movie that changed your life and made you want to set out on this path in which you study them and write about them and spend way too much of your, you know, life with them? <laughs> that like you're asking me myself at like six years old or something <laughs> yeah no for some people it's six some other people it's funny i've had a lot of people who started off as english majors and then they're like 21 and they're like i saw this weird movie in a film class and i decided on the basis of you know some 80s movie or a lot of people grew up with cable you know find stuff that way so i'm it's curious well, i grew up in berkeley california in the 70s and 80s and there were so many movie theaters there in a very small city of about maybe 120,000. so i just went to the movies all the time and everyone in my family loves film and it was also a good babysitter because my parents worked a lot <clears throat> and it was a small enough city at a certain moment in history where kids could just walk around by themselves when they were very, very little, and it was fine. So I got dumped at movie theaters a lot. But a film that really had an impact on me, and it and it corresponds to um, the series that I helped put together at UCLA Film and Television Archive that's going on right now as part of my book launch, is Jane Wagner's Moment by Moment. Hmm. And we just screened it this weekend, so I've really been thinking about how this film has impacted me. This movie came out in 19, I should know this, 1977. And it stars John Travolta. No, sorry, 1978. It stars John Travolta and Lily Tomlin. And it's a romantic drama. And he had done this right after Grease? He had, Saturday Night Fever had just come out. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. The previous year. And, Grease would come out just before Moment by Moment. So I think he had probably just finished Grease. And 
so he's he's a phenomenon. You know, it's not an overstatement to say that about John Travolta at this moment. And Lily Tomlin was incredibly well-known, successful, um, influential. She had done, of course, Laugh-In, Saturday Night Live. She had already been nominated for an Oscar um, for Nashville. So she'd already shown that she had range. And then she and Jane Wagner had made all of these television specials um, for CBS that had also earned them Emmys. And she had done her first one-woman Broadway show, Peary Knightley, where she had won a Tony Award. And Jane Wagner had also written that. So it's an exciting combination because it's, you know, these three incredible artists at this moment where they are peaking and... But have you seen this movie? I haven't. I actually, when I was reading your book and I heard about it, I was like, wow, this sounds like a really <laughs> curious combination. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. So this movie bombed. It was, uh, he's in his early 20s. She's older. She's 39. They have this romance. But I think it really freaked people out because it, it really def it defied the expectation of these two stars who were known more for um, comedy, some kind of musical aspect, um, dancing. And here they were. It was a, very much a character study of these two folks. It's hmm. like a real European film made by Universal in 1978 <laughs> with two enormous Hollywood television stars. Um but when I was a very little kid around this time, uh, of course, John Travolta, you know, was a great love. And I had that Grease record that I would just play all the time. Saturday Night Fever, because my father believes that children should see whatever they want. I saw that R-rated version of that movie a lot. Because I like the dancing, because when you're little. I hadn't seen it until like two years ago. And I was kind of blown away by it, where I was like, this is a really adult movie. It's an incredible film that still holds up. You know, you think it's just going to be silly about disco, but it's so much about class and mm -hmm. gender. And um, so I was already a little teeny kid who loved John Travolta. And I loved Lily Tomlin, too. My mother had this Lily Tomlin record um, that we would just listen to all the time. And so... I was really excited for this movie, but it was only, I actually don't know how long it was in theaters, but I don't think for very long because it was such a bomb. It never even got a home video release. So I think the studios, you know, they were, they were pretty disappointed and freaked out with it. So I didn't, I'm sure I didn't see it in the theater, but I remember seeing it on television because my mother and I would always watch like the Sunday night movie and seeing that film on our little teeny television and being so bored because there was no singing and dancing, but that it starred these two performers that I loved so much. And um, I think I think that moment of, um, of just this combination of watching a feature film on television, um, and I certainly didn't know anything about feature films on television, but really associating those stars with these big cinematic moments that I had experienced with them. Um, and then having to, you know, settle for them in this weird movie that was lost on me as a little kid um, on our little TV was really impactful. And of course, you know, watching it with my mom was really fun. And then 
you know, a million years later, you know, coming back to that movie and understanding, oh, like it was really complicated because these three folks, Wagner, Tomlin and Travolta had gotten together and with their star power, they were able to make a film that, you know, the Robert Stigwood, who was the, uh, the producer and who Travolta had a three picture contract with, I'm sure did not want to make this film because it wasn't going to star. I mean, John Travolta is in a Speedo the entire film, but he's not Dan. <laughs> he's like so sensitive and, oh, it's such a love story. So I don't think Stigwood was so pleased with it. Um, but to be able to come back to it so many years later and really tie it to me as a little teeny kid, um, that that has been a nice memory. And then this weekend we screened it in 35 in a theater and it was the print was beautiful and it takes place in Malibu. Everybody's tan. Everybody's in a kafkan or a speedo. And um, to see it with an audience that was mixed, you know, some people had seen it maybe when it came out. Some people had never seen it. But that sort of discovery with an audience and almost recreating I mean, not entirely, of course, but, you know, it's just special to be able to see a movie in a movie theater, that an old movie in a movie theater. So I would say moment by moment, that's that's a big a big film for me. Well, that starts to set the stage really well for my follow up question, which is um, really. So your, your book is primarily about uh, and your book is called Liberating Hollywood. If uh, I haven't said it yet, uh, it's primarily about women. Uh, directors in the 1970s. So to kind of give a little context, in the teens and 20s we have Lois Weber and Alice Guy Blachet, and there's this kind of moment where female directors are around, and then for a long period of time, I think your book says that Elaine May's the third one to join in. It's uh, Dorothy Arzner and Ida Lupino are members of the Directors Guild, but then there's and this... Shirley Clark. She and never Shirley Clark. Directed studio feature but she joins at some point okay. and then Elaine May yeah and then Elaine May but mm-hmm. there's there's this long drought so what is it really about the 1970s that kind of facilitates this small kind of new wave or renaissance for female filmmakers well the 70s it's it's the feminist movement and this intersection between the social justice movements that define America in the 50s, but then absolutely in the 60s and 70s, the civil rights movement, and then the women's movement, second wave feminism, that is the leading socio-political movement of the 70s. And the feminist movement in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, is challenging every single aspect of the American landscape, social beliefs, cultural attitudes, laws, politics. And so Hollywood is going through its own transitions in how it um, is adjusting to a new kind of filmmaking, a new kind of audience, a new kind of marketplace. And this intersection between the shifting cultural landscapes and sociopolitical landscape in the industry starts to break open in the smallest way, but still starts to break open opportunities for women. So if you have, we have the singular eras of Dorothy Arzner, who's the only woman director to be able to transition from the silent era to the sound era successfully. And she makes films from the late 20s. Her last film then is 1943. Mm -hmm. 
And then Ida Lupino is the only woman directing after Arzner. She directs her first film in 1949 and her last one in 66. And she's working in independent film, but within the studio system uh, in various ways. So there are those two singular directors separated by many, separated by years. Um, and then gradually in about, I always, I've marked the seventies from like 1966 to 1980. That's what I consider the seventies because we have to have this sort of ramping up for the seventies. Um, there's by my accounts, there's 16 women who directed at least one feature film that was intended for a commercial audience. And so that could be an art house film or it could be a studio film, but a film that was narrative and that the filmmaker had intended for an audience to pay for, um, to pay, you know, to purchase a ticket for. So it's a very, 16 women is very, very small, but, you know, compared to those singular uh, eras with Arzner and Lupino, it's significant. Um, and so that that's my point of entry with the book is looking at it. Um, in terms of feminism. Now, not all of those women identified as feminists. They didn't all make feminist films. I'm not calling them feminist filmmakers. I mean, there's a whole production culture um, that's very nuanced and complex and dynamic in the 70s that does describe itself as feminist filmmaking, documentary, avant-garde. But this is diff you know, this is a different kind of group and a figurative group because these women didn't all know each other. They didn't work together. Um, or they didn't, some, some may have uh, crossed over with each other in various ways, but they're not like a collective in any way. But, and some of them were feminists and some of them did identify as feminists, but I'm always trying to emphasize that they were very much individuals. But that's, that's they were what I actually... experiencing were, was a feminist, they were experiencing feminism, whether they were conscious of sure. it or whether they were... Um, talking about it just because of what was happening that was one of was one... You're, you're actually leading in my third question which is i i really appreciated how your book tried to view each of them as kind of this really basically how each one of them was a very different individual and how they all had very different career paths where you had some of them who were working in exploitation films for roger corman and you had some who by the luck of the draw uh were married to real estate developers who had extra money that they would kind of <laughs> throw around to, you know finance their yeah. their uh partners films and then you had some who s did their one film and then transitioned into television so I, I guess what are the what are the broad kind of strokes aside from being a woman in the 70s kind of as a subject of this kind of you know sexist studio environment and sexist culture what else kind of unites their career paths very generally and I know that's an unfair question because yeah. I just kind of started off saying what was <laughs> so great about their differences but I kind of wanted I, I wanted to look at it both ways yeah well again they they sh what connects them is this shared historical moment and it's very specific i mean we we know that the category of woman director is a fake category and it's a category that's forced on us mm -hmm. uh, and certainly as you know instructors teaching film history you know we all deal with it um and it's forced on us because the history is sexist because you know we 
these filmmakers have been marginalized or excluded or um, just ignored in various ways. So we have to create this category so we can fit them back in. But um, but with this project, it it's really rooted in this historical moment. And so it's very, very, it's a very specific look at gender, again, with the feminist movement and with Hollywood at this moment. And the way in which Hollywood is partially trying to cash in on the social justice movements, you know, to figure out, well, oh, the Stepford Wives, well, we can talk about feminism and then make everybody sexy. I love that movie. Um, and also, you know, there are a lot of filmmakers who did care, were interested in, and there is this moment where filmmakers can make these commercial films and um, and maybe put in some topical issues in a meaningful way or explore them. Um, so that's what connects all these women and that they all experienced sexism. Yeah, I think that's true. And in some general ways, they experienced it in, in um, a similar manner. There's, I noticed a real pattern of women starting a film and then getting interference from a male producer or studio executive or getting sort of pigeonholed like, oh, Joan Darling, she's a woman and um, she directed Mary, uh, Mary Tyler Moore show, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And then she gets pit and she's totally capable. I mean, nominated for an Emmy and she gets pigeonholed to direct a coming of age love story. And I think it's, you know, it was clearly because she was number one capable, but also because she was a woman. So there's some patterns like that. But after that, all of these directors are individuals. So although I locate them all in this shared moment, it's really to be able to talk about them as individuals. And that's really important to me in studying women directors, all kinds of women that, you know, were we're forced, we have to talk about the gender problem because we have to talk about sexism and racism and ageism, um, et cetera. But we also have to recognize these folks as individual artists because that's what they are. What was your kind of favorite diamond in the rough that you came over while you were doing your research? Like I think of like your, your emphasis on the DGA lawsuit at the end of the book, like, um, had that been a moment that a lot of scholars had talked about? Obviously, your your different interviews with the with the filmmakers that you've gotten on the record are very important. But I also think your kind of work with the lawsuit and locating that in terms of guild history, which is something that tends to be neglected or overlooked because it's mm -hmm. it's difficult to write labor history. But was there was there something in that kind of wheelhouse that? When you found it in the archives or you found it in transcript or in an interview with one of your subjects that you were like, this is this is the little like core <laughs> that is going to keep this project going. This is the well, the DGA case was really interesting. Nobody when I started on this project, nobody had written about it. It had been in an in-depth way. It had been mentioned briefly in a couple of books on women directors, Molly Gregory's um, book. Uh, Sorry, can can yeah. we just provide a moment of context? So the DGA essentially sues on behalf of the female yeah. directors and, and accuses the studios of sexism. Right. So I just wanted to establish what the lawsuit right. was for folks right. who hadn't read so, the book. And, and even to add on to that a little bit more, 
in 19 in the late 70s around 1978 there's this group of six women that are now really getting the attention they deserve in a big way and so now they've been named the original six and they kind of come together in um sort of accidentally at a meeting somewhere and realize that they're all highly qualified and that nobody is getting work and they're all members of the dga and they wonder well what is our guild doing for us and so they go to the guild and specifically uh, find an ally in Michael Franklin who heads the guild at that time and start a big data drive and have all of this statistical evidence that shows that women are not getting hired. And so then they get the guild on their side to support them in confronting um, the industry and basically call a meeting with heads of networks and studios and the leading production companies and say, look, we have these numbers and you're not hiring women, and what are you going to do? And um, from there, they really generate um, the, the first concentrated attention and that it's so public and in the press and that the guild is behind them is historic. And eventually, though, the studios and the networks and the production companies still will not cooperate. They don't want to do um, any kinds of time uh, quotas. Um, and um, and so in the early 80s, there's this lawsuit and it's a historic lawsuit and there has never been one like it where it's the first time ever that the Directors Guild has um, sued uh, major studios, um, Columbia and Warner Brothers, um, on behalf of their female and um, minority members for discrimination. And the Guild loses, but it's still a historic um, lawsuit and really draws a lot of attention to the within the industry in terms of hiring, but also within the Directors Guild, which has its own issues. Um, and so that case was was so important to me. I mean, one, nobody had ever talked about it again in a meaningful way. It gets mentioned briefly in a couple of places, but that's just, I mean, that's an incredible thing that the Directors Guild, the most powerful, prestigious guild in the industry that is not known for, at this point, for being political, for being feminist, for taking a stand um, in a big way in terms of civil rights, um, to file that kind of lawsuit that that was a, a key part of the book to anchor all of the profiles of these women's professional lives within a context and in the case of the lawsuit within a legal context. And, you know, today it connects to what's happening today. The ACLU has taken this up with the EEOC um, and is investigating um, gender discrimination with uh film and television directors. So, you know, it's a much different climate today, but the legacy of the activism within the industry in the 70s and early 80s is is um, is a really significant through line to what's happening today. So that was really interesting to me um, because it's one thing to just talk about people's careers and say, oh, they experienced sexism because it's a sexist time. But I wanted to be able to really root it in um, 
in a in a in a context that um, that really reflected something about how the industry works, and to be able to bring in the guilds um, was really important. And so I was just lucky that there was this lawsuit. I mean, as a writer, you're like, what is my story? What is my structure? What am I going to talk about? Thankfully, these women worked really hard so that I could... uh... And I thought you did a great job of kind of explaining how, like, there was this turf war even going on in terms of the DGA, where you had Michael Franklin and some of these more progressive members who were lobbying for uh was it the women's steering committee mm-hmm. is that the official name yeah um and this lawsuit and wanting this to go forward and yet you had some folks who were much more ambivalent ambivalent you had um the african-american director i can't remember his name who was like hey yeah who was much more he was like you know you guys overlooked us when we were making you know some waves about you know being overlooked as a demographic a couple years ago and then mm-hmm. was it james l brooks who I yes. think, yeah, I made that one comment where I was reading. I, I was like, I can't believe this guy because you kind of watch his movies and you associate him with a much right. different political outlook. And I was like, whew, that's yeah, not well, what I expected. That, story that Lynn Lippman, the director, told me um, where they had the six women, Lynn Lippman, Victoria Hochberg, um, Susan Bay, Joelle Dubrow, Nell Cox, and Dolores Ferrero. Is that six? I don't want to miss anybody. Um, <laughs> they had gotten together all their statistics, the the really progressive men on the DGA, um, uh, at the DGA who supported them, like Gil Cates, who's really important, and Michael Franklin, of course, and then they go and they confront the whole industry. And so how Lynn tells the story is that James L. Brooks comes up to her afterwards and says, you know, what are you complaining about? You are going to be really successful but that he did it in a way that she did not interpret as supportive because he still wasn't hiring women. And he's, you know, he is a co-creator of one of the most feminist landmark iconic shows where he really made an incredible effort to not only represent an interesting female character um, in Mary Tyler Moore, but also hired so many women to write on that show because he really wanted it to be true but there weren't that many women directors that show was on for a long time a lot of episodes so i think there was such a what really struck me in studying um the lawsuit and the way the original six um the sort of resistance and just anger and resentment that they encountered with men in the industry who could have they thought just hired a couple of women um, you know, with goals and timetables, you know, for every for every season, you hire a couple of women and try and get the numbers up. It's not like they were asking to just hire anybody off the street. They were asking to be considered as experienced directors who were members of the Directors Guild. Like that's you're vetted. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that they met such resistance and resentment but today we see something different because i do think there's some you know the shaming that kind of goes on now where shows get called out for um just lack of inclusion and diversity and and then you see some changes and um and that's much different you know in the 70s and the 80s that was not happening but today 
but today it's a it's a different climate so that's progress you know it took 40 years but yeah i i'm maybe a little more pessimistic because like this year <laughs> I, I was like there were so many movies by great female directors yeah. like the, i love the writer that's like i know people are talking a lot about leave no trace and yeah. which i which i really thought was quite good but compared to like you were never really here in the writer i was like those are two of the five best movies of the right. year and it, it just like no love and i know obviously the the oscar nomination processes com can be complicated right you were never right. really here came out in april for some reason amazon i think was the distributor it was just like this is too weird lynn ramsey isn't worthy of a push and the writer came out at this <laughs> off time but i was like you know after some of those critics guild nomination or the, the critics uh group nominations were coming out mm -hmm. in november december both of those films got elevated again and right. i just you didn't really see either studio try to capitalize on it and push them over the limit and bring them back into the to the limelight yeah it's true i mean i'm i'm always i feel i feel both optimistic and nothing has changed and of course the oscars is a great way to show sure. us that um, so I agree with everything you're saying and so many great films directed by women this year. Um, but I guess where you see things, you see some exciting examples are sure. in, you know, streaming content and episodic content, you know, whether it's streaming or um, on a network. And so in that way, it, it, there's it's improved since the 70s and the 80s. <laughs> it's so bizarre how things change and you see these incredible improvements and then they don't change at all <sighs> or or that will will latch on to something like the success of black panther and just be like oh we fixed it or you know like we, yeah. we constantly use these kind of superficial band-aids to move past these problems well, you that just much... always have to and this is something that was became really clear to me when i was writing this book is that you just always have to be foregrounding the, all the various discrimin, discri discrimination um, patterns of discrimination and discriminatory beliefs that are in play for generations. And in the same breath, you have to be talking about um, progress, sure. even if it, you know, it almost seems incongruent. Because, I mean, if we think back to the eras of Dorothy Arzner and Ida Lupino, where there's just these singular women directing, well, we could just talk about how everything is terrible because there's only one woman for, you know, 20 years or something directing a film. But in the same breath, we have to, you know, sit and talk about her work and her achievements. So it's, um, it's just the job that, you know, we always have to do and you always have to teach your students that to be talking about lack in the same breath of, you know, the various accomplishments that are taking place. To go back to the DGA lawsuit, um, I, it's been a couple weeks since I read the book. Um, can So they essentially lost on what I felt was maybe like a technicality, which essentially mm -hmm. the judge turns back to the DGA and says, you have a conflict of interest in this mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. And part, yes. uh, Go ahead. So the DGA was... Um, the DGA was... Uh, claiming that this is a class action suit and that it could re represent the class of women and members of color um, in 
this fight against discrimination and then focusing on the two studios. But Judge Reimer came back and said, I mean, the case really didn't get as far as, of course, the lawyers for the DGA thought it could, um, because she said the DGA was actually at fault. And for a couple of reasons. One, she didn't feel the DGA could represent this class of women and minority members because the DGA is a ma the majority of the members there are white men and the DGA didn't have a history of ever advocating otherwise. So there are some examples historically where there was a union that didn't have a majority of women but could represent them as a class because they had a history of caring about their okay. female members. But the judge in this case didn't feel like the DGA <clears throat> had, and it was true. I mean, when the men of color had um, tried to get the DGA to support them in the 60s, and this was Ivan Dixon's argument, um, the DGA said no, that that's not what they do. They don't do so social justice. Um, and, and it was only until the late 70s, 79, when the, the women came and finally the DGA had to, you know, get with, um, get with the seventies as it ended, get with the sixties, you know, that meant, you know, a decade too late. Um, so that was one issue with the lawsuit. And then the other was that, um, the studios claimed that the DGA was at fault because in the DGA's, uh, contract, it allows directors to hire, um, assistant directors and unit production managers. So in that way, that can lock women out, that can lock um, uh, minorities out because the director gets to choose. And so the judge felt like that also implicated the DGA. So it was a, it was a terrible, terrible blow for the guild. I mean, the guild um, invested, I mean, and of course the plaintiffs, um, invested so much and it just didn't get considered. And the numbers, I mean, that's what they, the, the lawyers for the guild had the statistics, you know, and, and they thought that was going to be enough, but um, this judge didn't think so. So, and there's some argument that she, Judge Reimer was a point, was a Reagan appointee. Hmm. And so um, perhaps her, she, her conservative background, which could be true, but you can also see in her argument that um, that the DGA just was not quite in a position to um, represent this class. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a it was a potentially um, earth shattering lawsuit that just never got off the ground in the way that the folks who had worked so hard on it hoped that it would. And yet those traditions kind of continue. Like you said, that the, the diversity report that they put out every year kind of coupled with the UCLA bunch survey, which is more about representation and the DGA's mm -hmm. numbers are more about female hiring. Where they, they basically, I think under Paris Barclay, had like a, a shame list every yeah every season where it was like, hey, yeah, this show doesn't have, you know, you got one, you know, you got one female, you know, you got one female director you got to pick it up so yeah well that's part of the legacy i think of that lawsuit is that um is that the dga really had to reckon with its own reputation um 
with regards to diversity in terms of race and gender. And so you see, after that lawsuit is lost in 1985, if you start looking through some of the DGA publications, they start to not mention it anymore. I mean, big surprise. I mean, it was a humiliation. And then it starts to get refashioned and they've, you know, started their various um, women's committees. And I mean, and now there's so many, it's African, there's the African-American committee, the Latino committee. And, um, and so, so the DGA sort of refashions that loss for itself and by placing itself within, um, I mean, they still don't force anybody to hire. They don't force production companies to hire, um, anybody. Um, but they do all those numbers. And so some members say, well, that's not enough because you're the guild and you're supposed to be protecting us. That's the whole point of being a member of a guild is that you are protecting and fighting for your members' rights. Um, so, uh, but I, it also seems like plenty of the executives, um, board members, um, uh, president of the, presidents of the DGA feel like, well, this is what we can do. And to sort of be at the foreground of that fight for diversity by calling out people or production companies, studios, networks that are not hiring fairly. Yeah. Well, let's, let's pivot a little bit to Elaine May. So Elaine May's kind of trajectory, and I'll briefly introduce it to give you a break to take a <laughs> sip of water. Um, yeah. it, I appreciate how uh, forthright you, and then just especially like, I mean, some of those cases were really complicated and I, and I really appreciated how accessible your prose made it to like understand them where I was like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm getting this. I'm getting the gist <laughs> of this. I'm glad to hear you say that. Cause when I'm writing, I'm not a lawyer either. <laughs> when I'm writing it, I'm like, I, this is hard. And I, if I was smarter, Maybe I would take a lot, just one class on how to do legal history, but it's really hard. So there were a lot of times in writing that chapter, and and I know some lawyers who, you know, helped me go through the papers and the documents that I was able to find to explain things to me, of course. But I did sort of worry, like, is this um, legal history for dummies? And then I thought, you know, it's okay because my target audience with this book is certainly you know, film historians, film students, and just the general public might the, who might be interested. So it it's not, um, it doesn't have to be the most difficult legal um, language because well, I, 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 I write that. <laughs> I really envied how you kind of threaded that needle in terms of making it both very accessible where I was like, man, I could actually like, you know how we always try to assign, you yeah. know, like kind of, like monographs in class yeah. to like undergrads and I'm like now my undergrads could understand this and this and I'm teaching this gender and sexuality in film class now and I was like yeah this this could this could work like if I want to bring this in this this could actually so well, I, I, I was I was really impressed with it so bravo because I know having put together eight million readers that every chapter I wanted to be able to stand on its own if it had to so yay <laughs> <laughs> successful in that way. <laughs> that was a wonderful read. Um, so Elaine May starts off, and she's partners with Nichols, Mike Nichols, and on the comedy circuit, right? So what, mm-hmm. and she very much, as I kind of said earlier, is this bridge between 
uh, that kind of old tradition of Lupino and Arzner to the, the newer tradition that we see, right? She's the fourth um, woman member of the Director's Guild. Um, and in certain ways, this this could arguably be to their detriment, right? When we start to look at, I can't remember, was it uh, McCarthy who was her? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Todd McCarthy was her assistant and talking about um, her experience on... Uh, was it Mikey and Nikki, or was it New or New Leaf? Um, it was Mikey and Nikki, and he's he was interviewed in Rachel Abramowitz's incredible book. Is that a gun? In, is that? Oh, I cannot remember the name of all these important books. Um, is that a gun in your pocket? I think okay, that's Rachel right, Abramowitz, yeah. and it's it's an incredible book about uh, women in the film industry, and she starts like in the '60s up to the early 2000s, and she quotes him saying that Elaine May ruined um, the possibility for women directors at this time because she had this reputation for being difficult. But I would say um, that that was impossible because the industry's sexism was far larger than one single woman director who may or may have not been unreasonable. Well, let's talk a little bit about that transition. So she starts off in improvised comedy and then decides to to pivot to feature films. What kind of encourages her or inspires her to go and do a new leaf? Well, May, I think, really is is the perfect example of how the film industry in the late 60s is trying to survive, is trying to reinvent itself. And this is the whole Easy Riders, Raging Bull argument that if you uh, that was um, famously put forward by Peter Biskin's book, but plenty of um, academic historians have this argument as well. And even in the press during this time in the late 60s and 70s, journalists are saying this too, that anyone who it seems like anyone who's young, determined, ambitious and loves films can make a movie because the film industry, again, is struggling to um, to survive, to reinvent itself. So we do see um, an influx of, you know, of all our favorite filmmakers. And so we have Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich and, you know, and all their great films. And, but the important point that rarely gets made is that it's white men who can take advantage of that. Um, but with Elaine May, she, as you've pointed out, she's um, she's the fourth woman director to be a member of the DGA in the feature category. Um, so um, Elaine May is the first woman to direct a studio film since Ida Lupino directed The Trouble with Angels in 1966 for Columbia, I think. And so Elaine May um, signs with the DGA in 68 or 69. And Paramount Pictures is uh, not only are these young male, white male directors taking over Hollywood, but also young white male studio executives. So Paramount Pictures is a really important example of that with Peter Bart and Robert Evans, Samuel Jaffe, these executives that are under 40 and just revitalize that studio with all the great films and blockbuster films, Love Story, Godfather, of course. Um, and so in the press, they're doing this real push to hire um, young 
writers, directors, sometimes both, which Elaine May is, um, and a real interest in different kind of material and adapting uh, literary works. So, um, so she's part of that wave, and they're taking Paramount Pictures is taking a chance on folks who haven't directed films. So May is really extraordinary because. It's, again, not an exaggeration to say that she and Nichols are, they just explode on the scene. And they're like this phenomenon in how they, I mean, they had some years in Chicago developing, um, you know, with their with their improv community, um, developing their work for sure and working so hard and collaborating. But when they get to New York, they're just popular almost immediately. And they just stand out, and their uh, their brand of humor is just so smart and unique. And um, and they also are on television. They're on. They do a record based on their Broadway show. They're on TV. They're doing live performances. So she's known. She's successful. She's um, together with Nichols, but also separately. I don't think there's ever anybody who says during that time or today that as a woman she needed him as a man. They were really seen as a team and individual talents. So Paramount, um, Paramount's interested in her because of her talent. Um, but it's also, it's also a pretty remarkable moment that again goes with the times that she doesn't have any, she barely even has experience at this point, um, writing screenplays or acting in films. So well, her knowledge of filmmaking at any level is, She's I was going to ask what what made do you know what made her pivot to decide to become like a director because you think of like if you look back at like the Hollywood vaudeville raids so many of those people ended up becoming performers so to a certain extent I was surprised that Elaine May didn't become more of a comedian and mm-hmm. wanted to go into I mean she's obviously in a new leaf and and writes mm-hmm. it but to to decide like I'm going to yeah. direct Well two things one will be my perspective but okay. I but the other is which I think is important to say and Drew you know this because we went to grad school together so you've heard all my dreams of wanting to interview Elaine May for the last <laughs> 20 years um as well as a million other people but Elaine May does not give that many interviews over the course of her career and now she's into her 80s and on Broadway again but she she that's her thing that she doesn't give interviews or she's pretty cheeky and hilarious and very Elaine May in interviews. Sometimes she's even writing it in the late sixties and seventies. Sometimes she's even writing an interview, um, under a pseudonym. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, um, you know, with another director, they might do an oral history and then tell us everything that they were thinking. But Elaine May has really kept it a bit of a mystery, which also is, it's frustrating. Cause I've, wanted to interview her but it's also kind of wonderful because it she's that in a certain way <laughs> right because she she's so fabulous so just be fabulous all around so what i think her turn to directing is that it seems like she was always a writer and she was always directing certainly during her years with improv because it really seemed in that community with the compass players in chicago that they were all um there's a lot of examples of that happening and um, and after she and Nichols break up, she directs, she writes and directs plays. And so that's always an interest of hers. So um, 
and then again, you have this moment where young folks who had never directed a film were now getting this chance and they didn't have to sort of, you know, climb up the ladder in the way previous generations had. They could just sort of come in to a studio picture from all these different ways, like being a, um, a performer and a comedian on stage. And so I think that was, um, from what we know, I think that was her way in. And I don't know if they courted her. I wouldn't be surprised because she's a lame May. I mean, she's this extraordinary talent at that moment um, who really stands out and fits in with what um, it seems that Robert Evans and Peter Bart are interested in doing, tapping into new talent. And she's going to be cheap because, um, because she's a woman and... So there's not that many of them. There's not any of them. <laughs> so there's certainly some sexism in there, but also that she's an inexperienced filmmaker. I mean, I, I haven't looked into how much her peers who were also inexperienced were getting paid, but I'm sure there's some examples of everybody. Well, and um, also the type of movie she's, right? She's going to do a rom-com versus The Godfather, which is a period piece. And yeah. so I can't, you know, I can't imagine that from their standpoint, they're like, ah, oh, it's, it's a gamble, but it's not going to be. It's worth it. Yeah. 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 So she, her first film is that she writes, directs, co-stars is A New Leaf. And, um, and she gets paid $50,000 for all those roles. So, um, yeah, they got a bargain. <laughs> it's a small film and they got a bargain. And then she got her, you know, her first chance to direct. So she goes from making a new leaf, which kind of had this troubled production history. I believe it goes over budget and over time. And there's some wrangling over the, uh, the cut of it. Um, essentially, the, the third act was different. We don't have to get into the intricacies <laughs> of it, but the third act was much darker uh, essentially, it's Walter Matthau's trying to kill her the whole movie and take her fortune. And, um, yeah, and then she doesn't get her final act in there the way she wants. But then she goes and does uh, Neil Simon's Heartbreak Kid. Right. And that becomes a, a box office success. I think New mm -hmm. Leaf Broke Even was maybe a little better than even. Yeah, and A New Leaf was a real critical hit. In it, and even though critics knew about the lawsuit between May and Paramount because it was reported on, critics still loved the film and loved her and um, were really pleased with the movie. I sort of think the film could have done better. I'm sure she didn't want to promote it, and I don't know contractually what she had to do to promote it or if they even wanted her to promote it after all the legal battles. But I feel like you know, if she had had a more successful time and, and the film wasn't um, didn't have so much conflict that it probably would have done better in terms of promotion. But it was still considered um, a critical hit. And then and then, yes, Heartbreak Kid, the same. It was, in Heartbreak Kid, you, you talk about in your book kind of has a easier production, be mm -hmm. partially perhaps because she's not writing it and may not feel as precious about the material as she did with right. relief and maybe conscious also on another level of kind of how her career has already been classified, but you essentially have two fairly dark comedies, right? You, you know, new leaf, Walter Matthews trying to kill her and inherit her fortune. And then heartbreak kid, he gets married on 
you know, <laughs> one day figures out the next day he's made this tremendous mistake, and within a week he's uh, he's divorcing her and running off with Sybil Shepherd. They're both <laughs> kind of these dark comedies, and then you you get a certain expectation of where her movies are going to be. Like I I had never I had seen New Leaf relatively recently within maybe the last year. Um, because of that olive disc that you did the commentary for, and I was like, I like this, I'm digging it. I watched Heartbreak Kid a couple weeks ago, which unfortunately I don't think it's on Blu-ray, so it was I watched some <laughs> bad copy on YouTube. Um, but then you know you get to to Mikey and Nikki, which I'm gonna give a real brief plot summary. Not that there's much to summarize, but it's a very different movie. It's essentially, it's two gangsters. Mickey played by Peter Falk and Nikki played by John Cassavetes and Cassavetes has stolen some money and run off with it and the mob is looking for him and and Falk who's always kind of been on the periphery of the mob they don't like him as much as they like Nikki um, has agreed to kind of finger him to a hitman played by Ned Beatty in order to get in with the mob and, and make some money on his own but this is essentially his best friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's kind of the plot of the film, whether or not he's going to kind of turn uh, Nikki in, who, you know, is, is kind of an asshole. Like, you know, he's this neurotic mess and he's he's a jerk to Peter Falk. He breaks the, the watch that Peter Falk's dad had given him, the sentimental object. And, you know, he's kind of taunting him the whole movie. And I was I was surprised by the end of it, how bad I felt for Peter Falk, who's really... You know, doing the bad thing here. He's, you know, turning his buddy in. But, um, yeah. So, so what kind of drew her to do, uh, Mikey and Nikki, after this huge pivot? Yeah. Well, it it seems as if, and I always have to like start off talking about Elaine May's history. It seems as if, <laughs> because again, I feel like there's not enough of her ever talking about herself. To um you know, we're really, we're always, as historians, we're piecing, and as fans, we're piecing big holes together. Um, So it, it, she, it seems like she had the idea early. In 1969, it's reported on in the trades that this started as a, as a one-act play. Um, And of course, she, she's always been a playwright, so that's not so surprising. Um, Or maybe it was, it was 68 or 69, that it's um, Peter Falk says that he and John Cassavetes are going to star in her feature film, Mikey and Nikki. So it's, it starts pretty early. It then seems um, that the film uh, Palomar Pictures signs a deal with 20th Century Fox to make a bunch of small films that are somewhere around $2 million. And Heartbreak Kid and Mikey and Nikki get reported in the trades as being part of that. And I found something else that said she agreed to do Heartbreak Kid in exchange for being able to do Mikey and Nikki. Mm. And in a way that that seems to make sense because Elaine May is a writer-director. And although Heartbreak Kid is a fabulous film and that co- collaboration with Neil Simon was seemed very successful for everybody, um, it's a little surprising. But... It seems like she made that kind of deal, but eventually Mikey and Nikki doesn't get made at Palomar Pictures and um, and ends up back at Paramount, which is surprising because she had had this terrible conflict with Peter Bart and Robert Evans at Paramount 
just a few years prior, and so that she goes back to work with those guys who they all seem to really dislike each other. I mean, Peter Bart says some pretty miserable things about Elaine May in one of his many books. So, um, so then she ends up making the picture at Paramount. And it's a small film. You know, I think it starts off like around $2 million budget. It's basically just got these two characters, Cassavetes and Falk. I mean, Ned Beatty. I mean, there's there's a lot of sure. uh, Carol Grace. There are a lot of fabulous um, secondary characters, but it's really a study of the relationship between these two guys as you've laid out. So... I guess how would you de- how would you define Elaine May as an auteur? Like, what's her style? What are her preoccupations that she tends to deal with? Well, if we're just looking at the four films that she directed, um, A New Leaf, uh, Heartbreak Kid, which is really a much more cynical film. I mean, it's a Neil Simon script, and of course, you know Neil Simon by that point in in 1972 with a heartbreak kid is already you know our most um significant playwright but also has moved into films in a tremendous way um uh but heartbreak kid is much more cynical than i think any neil simon film and a lot of that mm. critics attributed to her take on the material and then mikey and nikki that comes out in 76 and then of course ishtar in 8687. Um I think looking at those films I don't know. It's hard. I think certainly the last 3 there's a real interest in funky male characters, you know, guys sure. who are just um losers. We we have a lot of affectionate affection for them for sure, but they're a mess and um you know, we could call them anti-heroes. Um, they're just, they're just like funky guys. And she seems to be really interested in those kinds of characters. She does really well with those kinds of characters because we certainly, we feel sorry for them, but I don't think we ever can look away from their flaws. I mean, and something like Ishtar is just a straight up comedy, whereas Mikey and Nikki is very dark. And she always says, that or in one of her uh, big interviews at Harvard Film Archive in 2011, she talked in detail about Mikey and Nikki that it was never intended as a comedy and that the studio always thought it was going to be an Elaine May comedy and it wasn't. And that was part of the problem. Um, so I think I think that's that's one sort of thing that we can um sort of put in her wheelhouse as an auteur. Um, but even like stylistically looking at Mikey and Nikki, like it, 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 it felt more, it, it's strange. I don't know how much, what her collaboration with John Cassavetes was like, but it feels like a Cassavetes film where it's, you know, shot on these night streets and it's like handheld and there's not really any sets. It's just them like riding on a bus for, you know, a half hour playing that hand slap game where it, it's much more <laughs> about like dead time and yeah. um yeah just the, kind of the mundanities of like, like that horrible hotel room he's up in at the yeah. beginning it, it, yeah I, I, whereas the other films 
like New Leaf and and Heartbreak Kid felt a little more squared off and less shaggy mm-hmm. in terms of their aesthetics. I think I absolutely agree that between her four films, they really look and feel so different from each other. I mean, I'm I know there's ways that we can pull out many many. Elaine May nuances, but really just looking at the um, at their style, their visual style, um, and even the way the themes are conveyed, they look totally different. I mean, A New Leaf, for example, is such an early 70s film. You know, it's certainly much brighter. I mean, it's a black comedy for sure, but it's much brighter and lighter and goofy. I mean, and she's in it and she's hilarious and sweet. Um, and it fits more into that early 70s um, cactus flower kind of look. And of course, uh, Walter Matthau was in both those films, um, even kind of like a Harold and Maude kind of thing. And I'm, yeah, I'm picking those films because, um, or Goodbye Columbus, because those are other comedies that Paramount made in the early 70s. Um, although they're all very, very different from each other. But I'm just thinking of the sort of brightness and the color. Sure, kind um, of that Dick Sobert, or was it his brother who was the production designer on some of those? Where um, it, yeah. Anthea Sobert okay. uh, worked on A New Leaf and Harper. Oh, yeah, and she was the, she was the visual consultant, I think, on Mikey and Nikki, but yeah. She and, and Elaine May, I think, were, were are still good friends. I mean, they certainly okay. worked together um, on a lot of stuff. And the, and in Rachel Abramowitz's book, she interviews Anthea Silbert and, and who talks a lot about Elaine May's process as a filmmaker. But Heartbreak Kid is just such a 70s film. You know, it's bleak. It's such a 70s rom-com, like Shampoo, even like Annie Hall, you know, where you have all this romance, all this heterosexual coupling and etc and then it's just depressing in the end even though he gets uh his supposed dream woman he's aimless and so it's such you know and it's in the tradition of the graduate this pursuit of romance and pursuit of the woman and then everything's meaningless so it's such a 70s film and mikey and nikki is also such a 70s film in this bleak outlook and this kind of rambling exploration of relationship that is very loose. And that's what we love about those early 70s films, you know, whatever the new Hollywood 70s, where um, there are films being made in, at the studios, but they're so different because there's uh, it's Mikey and Nikki and those two guys are just running around practically being incoherent. But at the same time, it's an in it's they're just so involved with each other and that it's Falk and Cassavetes. You know, they have this history. They've made husbands in 1970, a woman under the influence where they're both on screen. It's almost like Mikey and Nikki is like part two of husbands where their characters in husbands who are going through their, their midlife crises or whatever, but they still kind of keep it together. By the time those guys get to Mikey and Nikki, they are not keeping anything together clearly because one of them is, it has a target on them, uh, on his head. But, um, and they had also done Woman Under the Influence um, just before because Mikey and Nikki is in production during 73, 74, comes out in 76, but, you know, just prior to it starting as Woman Under the Influence. So 
Well, I'm having a 70s moment. What was your original question? Oh, just trying <laughs> to kind of describe the visual style yeah. and, and yeah. May as an auteur and how this felt so different and yeah. in certain ways felt cast by the and then, well, Just one last point, because um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. When we get to Ishtar, I mean, that, of course, is an 80s film, and it's a, it's a much bigger budget for a studio, and it's absolutely a comedy. But those two guy characters are very reminiscent Sure. In a way of Mikey and Nikki, because they're just, they're different, but they're so similar. They're best friends. They're always annoyed with each other. They're helping each other. And they're just missing it. You know, they're just like in trouble because they just are clueless or they're just, um, you know, they're on the fringe. They're like small time. Um, so there's a through line in there. I mean, it's all, everything is also really hilarious in her movies. But you know, I want to say something, because you said um, it felt like a Cassavetes movie. Um, and, but why? I mean, I think it's, I think that there was a collaboration. There was a real synergy between those three folks. And Cassavetes and Falk talk about that in interviews during the time that they just really liked the way Elaine May worked with actors. And okay. that she gave so much space and loved actors so much. Um, well, that's where that, I'm kind of curious. I'm yeah. like, what came, was it May influencing Cassavetes? Because it, it, they just seem like there is this weird nexus where, mm -hmm. I don't know, me looking at her movies before that, but also knowing that how much she cares about improv improvisation. And even like in your book, when you account for how she approached Heartbreak Kid, where essentially she had to shoot it as written but would mm -hmm. have them improvise the same scene in the same tone and then film it in order to get like a different emotions. I'm mm -hmm. curious if she influenced him or if it was just kind of more, more of a collaboration. I don't, I don't really have much insight, I guess, into yeah. how they work together. It's a collaboration. I mean, I think it's easy for us to feel like it's a Cassavetes film because it does have a look like, because he's in it and he and Peter Falk are such a force and we know the films that they made around this time. <clears throat> um, but Elaine May is also a force, so we can't take anything away from her. And so in that way, I think it was a, a real coming together of those actors and directors um, that seemed to work out for them. It didn't work out for the studio or even the crew because there are a couple pretty biting um, profiles that come out at this time where the crew is like, she's brilliant, but we are standing, you know, on this street corner in the middle of the night, night after night. Um, but um, but I, I think we really, we have to, we just have to always say it's an Elaine May film. I had this experience like 15 years ago when I was living in New York and um, teaching at the new school and teaching Elaine May films. And there was an amazing video store that was just one of the best video stores, had everything was fabulous. And they had all the director's sections and they didn't have an Elaine May section, although they had all her movies. And I would ask all the time, why don't you have an Elaine May section? And they, it was very <laughs> sort of typical uh, <laughs> grumpy video store guy. She's a writer. <laughs> and uh, they said, no. And I said, well, why do you have Mikey and Nikki in the Cassavetes section, which they did, which of course just ah, yeah. crazy. And 
they said, oh, well, I don't know. And I said, well, why don't you put Rosemary's Baby not in Polanski's <laughs> section? Why don't you put it in Cassavetti's section? You know, like, get with the program. So it's an Elaine May movie that Cassavetti's co-stars in. <laughs> but it does seem, again, from reading some interviews at the time, that Cassavetti's and Falk um, really vibed with the way she directed actors. And it seems like from what her actors have said about her. Um, I think with the exception of Walter Matthau, who that was kind of a exceptional experience because she was a new filmmaker and she had admitted that she just really didn't, it was a learning experience every day and the learning curve was enormous. And he's like a veteran, veteran actor who probably can't be directed by anybody. Um, that she really loves actors um, and, and is really interested in that process. One of my favorite just things about the film was her focus on like how emotions can change so radically in a moment. So mm-hmm. like that scene where Peter Falk is trying to get cream at the diner because <laughs> he's got um, Nikki, the, the Casavetti's character has like an ulcer and he's trying to get him to like calm it yeah. down. And he, he's just like just this frustration that just like a, it just gradually like, well, give me two creams then and I'll order a cup of coffee so that you give me the cream that goes with the coffee. Yeah. Like, well, we can't do that. And then it escalates to this like slap, this kind of really violent slapping fight yeah. behind it's, the bar. I mean, the the man who plays the, the diner uh, counter person, I don't know who that is. I don't have the name in front of me, but he was fabulous because he's just doing his job. Sure. But that really felt like an Elaine May comedy moment where he has to go through, I want, you know, 20 of the small creams to make the cup. I mean, it's like this painful, tedious, horrible It's back to her stand-up, yeah, like that kind of, you know, the the ridiculousness (laughs) of everyday life. Yeah, and then that movie is so violent, Mikey and Nikki. It's really interesting. I mean, those guys are so full of rage. I mean, first of all, they beat up every single woman, practically. They beat up each other. They beat up all the men. I mean, it's just, they're really falling... And spoilers, I'm going to spoil it, but yeah. the shooting of Nikki at the end is like, yeah. I just was, it's it's torturous when Peter Falk yeah. is hiding behind that right. furniture he's pushed there right. and just how graphic <laughs> it, I was like, because yeah. I didn't, the whole time I was like, it's not going to happen. My, I was like, <laughs> yeah. he's not going to die. Like, they'll kill some, the wrong guy. That's where I thought it was going to go. It's going to be a comedy. It's going to be an Elaine May comedy in the last minute. <laughs> I wonder what, Elaine May was going through at this time. I mean, I don't know if she was going through something, but because it is such a dark film, um, she said that these characters were based on uh, guys in her family who, in Chicago, who were these kind of um, sort of small-time gangsters. And so that's always interesting to me, Um you know, what, what is the family history there, but also that it is such a violent film and that doesn't seem part of her, uh, any part of her body of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's certainly joked, I mean, in a new leaf or some of her plays, she, she jokes about violence and suicide and murder, but you understand it in a very comical satirical way. But this film, these guys have much rage and disappointment and so much anger 
And and yet the movie is also so moving. Like that last twenty thirty minutes where Falk goes home, and there's there's a comedic payoff to it because when he's telling his wife the story about his little brother growing up and how the little brother died, he's repeating himself just in the way that he asked Cassavetes earlier. Like, do you guys call me the Echo because I repeat myself? <laughs> so there's a certain humor in that scene, but it, it's also like this horribly moving, depressing monologue about how he felt like he was the looked over yeah son yeah and he's the looked over gangster yeah. too because the big boss can't stand him um yeah he's a very sad character and um there i think both of them are are so flawed and depressed and then in a way i guess we understand their rage but it's also sort of surprising because if they're kind of um I don't want to keep saying that they're losers because I feel like that's too judgmental, but, um, you know, they're, they haven't lived up to, you know, maybe their potential or what they wish they could have been as gangsters in this gangster community. Um, they, um, they also are so assertive in how they fight each other, how they fight their girlfriends and wives. I mean, it's an interesting kind of dynamic where, they de- they seem so powerless, but I guess they're then exerting power on people who are either right there with them, meaning each other, or the clerk at the diner, or their girlfriends and wives who are powerless. But Mikey Mikey's relationship with his wife is so different than Nikki's because mm-hmm. Nikki abuses his his girlfriend and has that moment where he doesn't he like. Yeah, he, he has sex with wife. her on the floor, and yeah, and then he like beats up his wife. But Mikey's constantly calling his wife to like yeah. check in and see how things are going. You know, I, I thought that foil relationship. And was... she's so, um, she's so amazing. She's like in a robe, but her hair is like <laughs> just coiffed and perfect, and she's so poised. But yeah, that's that would have been an interesting um, part too. <laughs> is uh is the are the wives stories the girlfriend <laughs> stories well i'm gonna I'll, I'll end with this question so right now you've had this awesome kind of supplement to your book which is you've gotten a program the screening series at ucla uh with a lot of the films that you've written about um do you think that this is going to like i'm curious about like the availability of these films do you do you mm-hmm. see this kind of moment this kind of me too awakening and times up movement where we're kind of talking more about women uh filmmakers and uh trying to make space for them do you think this will open more of a space in the canon for them where we'll see more of their works digitized mm-hmm. and made available like i said heartbreak kid i i had to watch on youtube and it's mm-hmm. like the, the most successful of her films yeah um i it's a really important question, and I would actually just try and put it out as a plea to anybody who has access to funding <laughs> to pay for this. I mean, I think that to pay for restorations and releases um, and preservation, I certainly think in this current moment of activism in the industry, which is really a unique moment, um, absolutely tied to what happened in the 70s, but every generation, you know, has its own mark that it's going to make. And right now, some incredible stuff is happening. So I do think there's an awareness. And I do think that there, you know, from our perspectives in academia, um, 
that there is, you know, a generation of academics um, and instructors that know that, you know, how to teach history in a more inclusive way. So, and that students, students demand it, you know, and that's fabulous. I mean, it's so great to go into a classroom and your students, you know, they don't know the history yet because that's why they're in college, but they know all, they have all the right demands because they're coming of age now when things are, um, you know, really exploding in different ways. So that's good. The thing about preservation and these films coming out, it's something that in putting together this series at UCLA Film and Television Archive with programmer K.J. Ralph, she worked so hard to find prints. And so that's something we discovered um, that... uh, Movies from the 70s are now our classics. You know, they're now old enough to really, we need to worry about them. So, for example, we showed Joan Tewksbury's, um, the only feature film she ever directed, Old Boyfriends. And it was very hard to find a good print. We could not find, um, there were two prints at the Academy Archive, but they were very faded. And we were just really stuck. I mean, we ended up showing the Faded Prince because that film doesn't show that much. And Joan hadn't seen it since 1979. So, we, you know, oh, wow. it's an incredible film starring Talia Shire. Um, but we had this moment of really being faced with how films directed by women during this period. And certainly we've seen this in all the work that's been done on uh, women directed films in, from the silent era, that they've really been neglected and so in that way preservation and restoration is you know has a does have a whole gender component um but um the good news about old boyfriends as is that in putting together this program with kj we were able to bring in the original producer and distributor um at pressman and he and his wife annie have been so helpful in trying to get a new print made and so I think one is going to be made it wasn't made in time for our series but I think it it there's a possibility and there's an interest in the film so somebody's going to see a new gorgeous print of that movie we hope um so it's you know or it's it's preservation and restoration is so important and unfortunately it's really expensive I mean there are a couple things that have to happen first you have to be able to find sure. the elements to restore and so many of these films we don't know you know and certainly for the most part filmmakers don't own their prints or elements um so they they are as lost as the folks who are trying to preserve them but i do want to just acknowledge the organizations who are so dedicated to um showing films and for the you know the example that we're talking about now films directed by women in the 70s so certainly at UCLA Film and Television Archive, the Academy, at a place like uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music, they always have incredible programming. And recently, maybe the last two years, they did an incredible, they did a couple incredible series that focused on women directors in the 70s and also specifically African-American women. Um, So there, and there's just tons of sort of smaller programming efforts. And that's what's also so exciting in this moment of of contemporary activism is I think we see, we're seeing a real resurgence of 
um, film going. I mean, certainly all the different streaming platforms. Um, and, um, but also, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I'm really lucky that we just have so many places to see things, American Cinematheque, uh, LA County Art Museum, et cetera, et cetera. But you just, I think people want to go to the movies um, and people want to open movie theaters and show old films, meaning films from the 70s. So thank goodness for all of that, because there's a lot of folks who are not filmmakers, who are programmers, archivists, um, et cetera, who just care and um, are just doing great, great work to um, to show audiences either introduce for the first time or reintroduce and revitalize old films that have been lost, buried, ignored, um, and deserve some love. No, that's great. Uh, and it makes me actually think about a point you made earlier. So obviously the DGA publishes this data and tries to shame companies into change. I don't know if you knew about this, but over the last two or three years, like a significant constituency on like film Twitter has tried guilt tripping Criterion about their their ratios about <laughs> male dominated, you know, films to, to, to women films, that. and it's like I'd like all of a sudden it's like Smithereens is coming out and Mikey and Nikki yeah. and um, what else is coming? Uh, Wanda's coming out next month, which I've never yeah. seen before. So all of a sudden. Yeah. I don't know if there was a correlation. These things could have been made, you know, these deals could have been made years yeah. ago and just waiting for elements to come together. But it, it yeah. seems like some of these companies are making a more marked effort when, you know, yeah. they're not there to fill the gap. Like Olive putting out that great disc of a new leaf was, I, yeah. I was so happy to see that. Yeah, I'm happy to see that uh, Criterion has more films directed by women and specifically feature films directed by American women because um, because that group I just does not get the recognition that they deserve um, until recently I feel like in the last 10 years there started to be a shift but um, um, yeah it's really exciting that uh, more women are showing up in that collection because of course it's you know such a loved prestigious collection and I'm happy to see more American women being able to represent American cinema like Susan Seidelman. And, um, I mean, a early one that they did, uh, Alison Anders border radio, maybe that came out almost 10 years ago on criterion, but I feel like that was maybe one of three American women they had at the time. Yeah. I think so. Um, Donna Deach's desert, desert hearts, hearts was, I recently. think about a year or two ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, of course, a wonderful, wonderful film. I'm, I'm teaching it next week, so I'm particularly excited. We're doing in oh, this yeah. gender and sexuality class. We're doing uh, right now the, the keyword. It's around different keywords in film history. Uh -huh. So right now we're doing the cowboy. So we did Shane for, like, the classical <laughs> example. Uh -huh. And uh, this week we're doing Johnny Guitar, and I'm just like, I'm oh, waiting oh, to go yeah. into class tomorrow, and they're going to be like, what <laughs> the fuck was that? And then I'm like, yes. Um, and then Desert Hearts is the third one in, in that unit. And then I think Femme Fatale's next. And we're doing, what, Gun Crazy, Gilda, and uh, Bound. So, oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah, it's, that it's, is a fun class. I know. I'm just I'm waiting for all these, like, ripe freshmen, you know, and sophomores <laughs> to be like, I'm actually, like, watching some awesome movies. And, you know, we're just sitting there. There's It's eight of us. It's an honor seminar. It's it's sweet. So That's the, that's the fun of teaching film is being able to put together some bizarro combinations and forcing 
them on to <laughs> students. I only, I only, so you can hear all their brilliant reactions. Well, and that's the only thing I miss about UCLA is being in the screening room with them when they're watching them and, yeah. and getting their reactions in real time. Like even seeing something like Psycho, where I thought the first time I taught that at UCLA, I'm like, they're not going to think this is scary. And they're still like hiding under blankets it's and stuff. Scary. Yeah. It's still scary. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. it is fun to watch with your students. It is fun. Although there's some movies that I like to teach, but I don't know if I could ever watch Pink Flamingos with my <laughs> They do teach it every once in a while. And, I, you know, it is one of my favorite movies. And it's something that I think everybody needs to see. But I've, I've but not slut. seen it. You've never seen I've, it? I've not seen it. I'll, we'll have to do oh, another so one lucky. of these where I watch. Well, no, because like, so I. I you're so lucky because now someday you get to see it for the first time. <laughs> well, I want it. I want to see it. I don't think it's actually out on Blu-ray, and I kind of have this like semi-fetishist. You watch things on Blu-ray. I, I try to watch them in the best way possible. So like, it was like it was one of these things where like we saw Hairspray again this summer, and I was like, I should oh. watch like Pink Flamingos and a bunch of the you know the the older kind of. The uh-huh. golden age of John Waters, because yeah. I've seen the later stuff, which, you know, there's diminishing yeah. returns a little bit. Um, but yeah, like, and I was I was trying okay. to find them on streaming or even find, you know, and it, some yeah. of the copies were difficult to track down. So yeah, it's I saw Pink Flamingos sort of late in life, like already in my mid twenties, and um, jaw dropping. <laughs> I mean, it's. I I, know, I I I'm familiar with the moments, but yes, I have. I yeah, have. but just like the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so you have something to look forward to, but you need to see it like at a midnight screening somewhere. Yeah, it was kind of like <laughs> one of the most depressing ones I had was I hadn't seen um, the room, so I was trying to bulk up mm-hmm. last Christmas for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the disaster artist. So I watched the yeah. room like home alone in Texarkana, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think this this isn't right. Like this is just boring <laughs> and bad. Like I need a room. I need I need to. There, there needs to be the right atmosphere yeah, for it's this. It's like so. Rocky Horror Picture Show. You have to see some movies. You can't watch them at home alone. You have to see them with a crowd. <laughs> well, next time I see um, Pink Flamingos playing at a midnight show, I'll make a point of going out of my way to see it for you. Yeah, <laughs> that's has Nicole ever seen it? Yeah, she's seen. I think I think at UWM they had done it when we were undergrads, and I just I, I'm too old. I've been old for like a long time. Oh, and the midnight movie, I'm, I'm just gonna make you young, Drew. Like, like if it starts at ten o'clock, I'll be there. But mid, midnight screens, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that kind of stamina anymore. <laughs> Especially if it's one where like you're semi inebriated going into it, mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna fall asleep. <laughs> Pink flamingos deserves my movie. utmost attention. You couldn't sleep through that movie. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. It's so good. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, like I really it. enjoyed reading your book, and it was that it, it's been so cool to kind of see something that I've, I've seen you talk about for for ten years, like grow oh, my, from this little yeah. germ into this wonderful book I and know. screening series. And I wish I wish I was in Los Angeles to see some of those movies. Well, I do want to plug uh, the series because n- this week. For anybody who's listening and is in L.A., we are showing A New Leaf and Heartbreak Kid this oh, weekend. And then there's still um, two by Stephanie Rothman and two by Joe Micklin-Silver. 
Well, I hope, as you can hear at the end there, Maya plugging the series Liberating Hollywood at the UCLA Film and Television Archive at the Wilder Theater located in the Hammer. You can certainly go check out uh, the, the tail end of the series. Uh, she Again, I'm, I'm envious of this awesome opportunity she's gotten to program uh, this complete film series alongside the release of her wonderful book. So please check these films out. They're not available terribly widely, some of them. And uh, if you can't check them out, Certainly, you can find her book, Liberating Hollywood, uh, on Amazon through Rutgers Press. It's definitely worth checking out. I don't actually have a new guest to tease yet. I haven't arranged it. Um, I was trying to get this episode out quickly so that we could kind of tie this in with the screening series and try to get some more eyeballs on these wonderful Elaine May movies. Uh, so please keep an eye out on the Twitter. You can find me at The Cinema Doctor. Otherwise, have a wonderful couple weeks, and I'll see you at the movies.